We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. I am your host, B. Costa Gomez, and I'm very excited today because we have a very special episode. And I'm here with three um, very special guests. Uh, we have Pika Johansson from the Turing, a researcher, and she works in online safety research. Uh, we also have uh, Aoife Mannion, a Manchester United player for the women's team. And we also have Shei Akiwowo, an author and also CEO and founder of Glitch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Hello. <laughs> It's a pleasure to have you guys. Um, and before we start, shall we um, hand over to Pika to explain why we're here and why is the cheering doing this uh, podcast? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm happy to, to kind of talk you through the backdrop of which this uh, report was uh, initiated. Um, basically, we've seen this uh, crazy increase in abuse aimed um, at professional athletes, uh, in particular online. Um, it was again kind of brought to the fore in the 2020 Euros finals, where we saw a lot of racist abuse primarily coming through on social media, which once again really highlighted that online abuse is a really urgent problem. And, you know, one of the many places where this uh, manifests is in the abuse faced by, by professional athletes. Um, Ofcom then, in their role as the new regulator, of online harms in the UK partnered with us to continue building on their understanding of abuse um, that proliferates online in this specific context. Um, so I guess everyone that came together around the table for, for this particular report um, commissioned by Ofcom and supported by DCMS, so the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, um, basically have this idea that, you know, permitting online abuse in sports sends a message that this is a reasonable response to have kind of to these in the heat of the moment um, thoughts that come to mind or, or um, you know, messages that you send um, live in real time as, as um, these sports events kind of progress, which we um, can see a lot in the material that we analyzed. So fans and supporters seem to be really struggling with knowing when they are in fact crossing the line and their criticism is actually like really, really vile, um, extremely abusive and um, really just doesn't have a place in sports. So that's kind of how we started to um, go about thinking about this report. This is really interesting because we've all know stories of when we are upset, we shout at the TV, but now with social media, we get to shout at people, which is so much worse, right? Exactly. Aoife, can you tell us a little bit what it's like to be on the other side of the sports person that actually receives the, the, the abuse? Yeah, so my day-to-day -day experience is of being a women's professional footballer. Um, and that hasn't meant a whole lot for, for many years. But in this last couple of years, um, women's football as a whole is growing traction and attention on social media. And so we're starting to have a window or a lens into some of the abuse that male professional footballers experience. Um, and so I get to see it potentially from more of a receiving end. Luckily, I've not been sort of specifically targeted, I would say, in like a you know, a consistently abusive way. 
I think something that's come out of the research that the Alan Turing Institute did was that difference between or coding comments as either negative or abusive and, and how that area can, can be quite grey. Um, and so my experience has been that I have received plenty of negative comments. Um, I'm not sure how much of that would be able to be codified as, as abusive, um, but certainly I've been in the presence of other footballers who have definitely uh, received uh, online abuse. Peak mentioned in the in the 2020 Men's World Cup um, some of the racist abuse that, that the footballers r- received after that final. Um, and, I, you know, so, some of my teammates have been on the receiving end of abuse of that nature, uh, which is obviously completely unacceptable. And so that's sort of where my experience lies. Um, and this is a great segue into asking Pika to tell us a little bit about the results of the research. Yeah, of course. Um, so basically, we um, had this report commissioned by Ofcom, which analyzed uh, 2.3 million tweets. So this was the first half of the uh, previous Premier League season. Um, we found that just under 3% of the tweets were abusive. Um, but in sheer volume, this is still 60,000 tweets, and that in itself is 60,000 tweets too many. Um, and some players are receiving hundreds of abusive tweets in, in a single day. Um, so with that being said, you know, we really found that the abuse is disproportionately affecting a quite small number, but that a lot of it also is a little bit in the gray zone in terms of, um, you know, really seeing that it is criticism, but um, criticism that then crosses the line to being really, really abusive. Um, and that's where Ofcom has been really helpful and lots of other um, kind of members in this community, uh, such as Kick It Out, um, that are really trying to help educate fans and supporters um, when it comes to, you know, where does that line, where is that line and, and how can we help, um, you know, supporters and fans um, not only, you know, produce obviously lots of positive comments, which we saw as well in the report, actually the majority of what we saw was very positive, but it is that we still have um, a lot of this criticism that uh, just turns abusive. Um, I think our report found that there's also a a lot of um, footballers that re- receive this abuse every single day. So I think that was about um, seven in 10, um, which is also, it's also crazy because that just means that you know, someone opening their phone or someone being active online is uh, targeted um, every single day, kind of in in a consistent manner. And even if it isn't, um, you know, facilitated by um, lots and lots of people that are um, are sending abuse in these kind of like um, storm like uh, scenarios where you see like a lot of this uh, research has shown that it is kind of coordinated or that there are lots and lots of accounts uh, behind it. And um, I think maybe the last thing I'd like to emphasize is is that we did also have a look into identity attacks. So to what degree that protected characteristics are being um, targeted in this abuse. And and even if we kind of say um, in a lot of our casual conversation that a lot of it is based on identity, uh, I would again like to emphasize that that our research doesn't really point to that. Of course, that does exist. And that's um, there that. The examples of that are very abusive, but um, our research, I would say, um, points rather to that it is criticism than than a lot of the, the racist or in other ways um, material that attacks uh, a person's identity. In a way, that's a that's a 
surprising result, right? That you you would that I um, that you would expect the identity attacks to be in a much more prevalent number, uh, because those tend to be the ones that hurt the yeah, most. Yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's it's really hard actually for us, you know, as researchers to say. Um, you know what is what is hurtful like what do what do people actually feel when they when they receive this and that's why i'm really glad that we're in this conversation and also we're able to you know raise it in a bigger forum where people um that are actually players <laughs> um can speak to this um because yeah i'm i'm really not in the position to say that you know criticism hurts more than than anything else or that you know if someone targets my identity um that that hurts more so i'm i'm really grateful to be able to you know speak about this in a conversation where where we're saying this is what we see, but yeah, trying to stand a little bit away from um, putting too much value in, in how people feel about that. That's something, you know, where I really feel like we have to bring more people in to, to get a better understanding of, of how it affects people. And, and of course, it also affects everyone differently. I think it speaks a lot that even on a relatively, there's still thousands of people that feel like they can go out uh, online and just voice their opinions directly at someone else even there either if it's just a criticism or if it's um just an attack to the person it's still is still too much um but i guess then you're passing the question to Aoife right like what type of uh, tweets would you find um that would be harder to receive as a sports person I mean, that's a great question. And I think there's a whole conversation around how hurtful different types of tweets are. And if I'm to think of tweets that have potentially been really negative towards me, um, they've usually been about actual things that I've done on the pitch. And so there is a, a level of separation that I can have between myself and my identity and, and what the abuse is about. Um, and so I would say, from my perspective that those comments are not as potentially serious or harmful um, to deal with than attacks on an identity, even though potentially from the Alan Turing research commissioned by Ofcom, they may have been less prevalent, which we probably didn't actually expect because in the media at the moment, um, rightfully we're seeing lots of people um, speaking about being on the receiving end of identity attacks, racist abuse. Um, and so like the more airtime that's given to that, the better, because social media platforms do need to go further to stop and shut down people from, from sort of spreading that sort of abuse. Um, and so that's probably what I would, would say on that. don't know where Shay would, would like to jump in on that. Yeah, I think I think I agree that it's difficult to start developing a framework that Ofcom can be using if we frame the question, how much did it hurt? And then it gets into a, I think, dangerous um, funnel that we're currently in of perpetuating victim blaming. The victim has to prove the bruises, the emotional scarring, the the impact on finances, the impact on their well-being, sleep and all of that. That in itself is re-traumatising. And I just don't know how helpful it is for a professional footballer who just wants to play and play for their fans and play for um, their club that they wanted to play. And, and, you know, another layer that's really important for women's sports, finally getting the recognition that they deserve. Should they have to be spending 
finite amount of time justifying what hurt is. Like, I just don't know if the framing of the question is helpful. We don't have to do that with other areas of law. If someone, um, you know, uses poison, we don't have to ask them, how poisonous was it? How much did that poison hurt? Like, we don't do that with other bits of crime. And I think that's, and I think that comes from patriarchy and the world that we live in that already from the from the output desensitizes and has a higher tolerance to when women experience abuse and violence that we would never ever make other groups do that we don't have to justify um things when it comes to safeguarding it's point blank wrong when it comes to um um, breaking safeguarding in schools or in or health and safety assessments at work and i think that's the same systemic leveling that we need to have when we're having this conversation about online abuse and violence i think the second thing around the the the, the grayness between what is hurtful negative sorry let's start again the the grayness between what is negative and what is abusive i think that requires a real public conversation and dialogue just because something isn't illegal do we still have to do it do we have to still keep getting law to play catch up with human behavior no how can we set the frame the, the conversation to be on the other side how do we reframe this and be like what positive contributions and what positive conversations do we want to be having online what does accountability look like because there is a need to have accountability in football where at the moment there is conversations around it needing to be regulated people can buy players and a lot of money's in there and like you know there's a there's loads of calls you know including Gary Neville around transparency um in football so there is a need to have positive conversations about football and hold people to account for money that's being spent for season tickets going up for fans feeling you know frustrated how do we then frame the conversation like so what does positive accountability look like we know how to hold MPs accountable we know how to hold our GPs and nurses accountable how do we have that when it comes to football and fans? Yes, there's like offline, you know, um, fan supporter clubs for people to kind of like go through a kind of a complaint complaint process, but there actually isn't one. And I think that we've seen an increase in heated conversations, negative conversations that have then blurred into negative, um, abusive ones since the European Super League, which is something I don't think people want to talk about anymore because it's like oh that was an ugly bit of football history but that has opened us a kind of worms in like how do we have a conversation about the small p politics in football that people want to talk about and it's not players who are at the should be at the brunt of this as well it's actually you know members of staff it's people in the clubs themselves so i think the conversations are a lot more complicated than I guess framing it of like how much did it hurt you to prove to Ofcom they need to be holding social media accountable no social media platforms have have made billions of money billions of pounds of, and money on conversations on public conversations they can be the ones to work out how we have a healthy conversation and dialogue with each other that doesn't mean now we're now going to, to identity abuse or violence um thank you so much I I you brought you brought a lot of um, points up that I think are really interesting, and that we can discuss. I also want to point out that I think abuse also in uh, football happens in person because we're used to seeing all of these, um, the fans in the stadium just shouting whatever they want, and I guess that's a a good analogy to just tweets, right? They are at the stadium and they get to shout at the 
at the footballers and there's no accountability there as well they get to go there's lots of examples where people take even their kids and they teach even the kids that it's okay to shout any um insult i completely agree i went to a, a, a match i won't say which one and i somebody right next to me shouted something extremely racist to a black football player on the pitch and there was nowhere for me to like on public transport i can text a number there was nothing for me to do on the, on in the stadium and so i think these are the levels of conversation we need to be having around what are clubs responsibilities to fans and supporters and to players um and it's not social media companies have a part to play when it comes to the online aspect of this but as you said b this is just an extension of what's happening offline we've seen a rise in fans chucking banana skins and fruits and all sorts of stuff and chanting and 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 being extremely violent abuses abusive offline if that is not properly and consistently tolerated offline of course people are going to do that online which is where social media steps in but 100 we need to be having a conversation around digital citizenship which is about our offline behaviors and our online behavior and behaviors and unfortunately players and women players and women players from minoritized backgrounds as well are in are caught in the middle of something that is actually not their fault i do think that what you said which is ends up being victim blaming but it shouldn't be on the footballer side you're absolutely correct on that um and um i wonder if Eva or Pika have anything that they want to add at this point? I think, Shay, what you said about um, reframing the narrative away from victim blaming, like there's so much to unpack there. Um, it's the wrong question to ask. You pointed that out. Um, and l- less less emphasis should be put on the person on the receiving end. That That's definitely, definitely the case. Um, a, a lot of the, the, the nature of the negative slash abusive comments that footballers get that that I've seen so my immediate experience tends to be around like a specific game or a specific moment and so sometimes what I find it's actually the pylon effect of of a moment that's happened potentially a player's had a bad game and so any one tweet or one comment on its own if, if you read it or if you heard it out loud might not cross over into like an abusive nature but that influx of potentially hundreds or thousands of people adding or sort of jumping on the bandwagon um is like it's it's super scary and really intimidating to to be on the other side of um when when i did my current injury uh, i actually did a really poor attempt at a tackle on a player i then i twisted my knee and needed surgery and she went on and scored um, and, and for months, when I would look on my Twitter, I would see memes and videos of me getting injured, basically, in, in the process of the player scoring and, and reading commentary about, you know, how poor of a player I was or how rubbish I was, how my career was over, um, how that player had sort of ended my football career. And so one sort of potentially one comment could be quite easy to swallow, but that influx it is not something that I think that human nature is used to dealing with because it's just, it's like really antisocial behaviour. Um, and then one more example from the other night where, where it can be quite hard to, to, to speak, speak about it or understand it or unpack it. Um, we've got loads more fans now than we did last year. And what that's meant is that the way that we interact with players, so with fans like children, 
after the pitch has changed because there's so many. So the other night we had 6,000 people at our game. Um, and then last year we would be able to go around the whole pitch after the game, have a picture, you know, sign an autograph, share some nice words with almost every person that wanted to. And this year that's just not possible. Um, and so what's happened actually is that parents now private message players with with comments along the line of you know you've made my child cry we traveled two hours to see you and I shouted at you 50 times and you walked past me um and 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 you can imagine players receiving comments like that can be can be really I don't know I'm not sure at what point that then becomes sort of like abusive and and really antisocial but on its own like just one comment is is probably not not that I don't know, like not as, as serious. And so earlier when I was speaking about kind of like that grey area, those are the sort of things that I was sort of swirling around in my head, like that pylon effect sometimes. So, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to jump in on that, share, share anything. On the pylon, I think this is where social media companies do have a role to play. Where do we get equipped with tools to be able to not receive those kinds of messages? That is where I think social media companies fail. So, um, and I'm concerned now with Elon Musk buying Twitter, how much of the products that organisations like Glitch and um, others have been campaigning for for years are going to be slowly eroded. Um, And the things around um, blue tick and being verified gets cheapened in conversations as if it's, you know, celebs versus normal people and all of that. And it's not that. It's actually a point. It's, It's one, a safety thing for children to know that, they're not having someone pretend to be a celebrity or a footballer or whatever and grooming them, which happens a lot on the platform. And actually, it's, it's a real safety mechanism for kids. But also it helps the individual who's a celebrity who all of a sudden is, you know, put thrusted into, into, uh, into the spotlight and doesn't know how to kind of funnel all of this stuff that they're seeing. So that verification is key. And we don't have enough of those safety tools to help players, to help everyday people navigating the volumes that they receive. There should be an ability to be able to mute words more, accounts more, videos more, like that particular meme that you were talking about earlier, there should have been an ability for you to have sent that image video to mute that so you don't have to keep seeing that. And I think we for we don't know what we could reimagine from these online spaces because we keep being fed breadcrumbs and i think the best thing that we can do is exactly what was said earlier is bring the analogy back to offline somebody can't pile onto you like that offline so what mechanisms and ai can be used to make sure that that doesn't happen online and i think the second thing i can this is now taking away from social media more on football again i i would be really interested in a study that compares the abuse between sports because Glitch and BT Sport um, work together um, on BT Draw the Line to kind of start educating fans across um, um, football clubs um, what where the line is, how to spot it, how to report it. There was YouGov studies that showed all of this in spring last year before the racist attacks. And so there could have been a lot more effort by, um, by clubs to do something before the Euros, um, in my opinion. But what I do find particularly interesting is somebody who's not really a football fan, unless it's the World Cup once every four years, that there is something um, more sinister about football and the way people talk, that, that experience that you talk, you're saying that parents DMing you saying, you are mean to my child, like I can't 
imagine that happening happening elsewhere that kind of maybe online hooliganism I think is particular to football that we don't really see elsewhere now I'm not dismissing that there isn't abuse in golfing we actually get tagged in a lot of abusive messages women in golfing get but it's the level at which I'm particularly interested in I think is it something about the sport in the UK but the sport as well that is very different to cricket basketball netball swimming you know you name it what is it about that that actually again we put on clubs to start rectifying I just want to to also point out that one thing that made me that what you were saying Shehi made me think is that even our conversations put a lot of um a lot of the weight on the players because when you say oh um players are receiving abuse uh, you always hear comments like oh it's part of the job it shouldn't be part of the job to have to deal with such a personal um with such a heavy weight and it's part of that's what everyone says right oh it's part of the job you have to deal with it you have to learn how to deal with it it shouldn't be on on the players to learn how to deal with it it just shouldn't exist um so pika do you want to yeah no i just i just completely agree and and footballers and and all other professions should really be able to do their jobs without encountering this abuse and and maybe just tying that back to the points that have been raised um I really do think that there's just so much potential for having more, you know, safety by design type features and really increase the user empowerment kind of capabilities within platforms and and that that is really where um platforms could make a huge difference. So, um not necessarily, you know, changing as much what exists on the platforms itself on themselves, um which of course is like one way to address it, but um tackling it from the other end of it so that users can decide um and have much more autonomy when it comes to what they want to be seeing so that you can actually say this is content that I do not want to be part of I do not want to see it um I do not want to be receiving messages from XYZ or that mention these topics um and I think that there's just so much more that can be can be done there if I could jump in there um well though I wanted to go back to one of Shahi's points but I just quickly want to um jump on with one of Pika's points there um about uh the design of social media so that our, our experience uh can obviously be better and something that i was thinking when you were saying that was how draining it is to get to that point where the default at the moment can be quite toxic and and quite abusive and that i'm at a place now the way that i interact with twitter and many of the girls do we tweet you know, sorry we mute notifications or we sort of Twitter will suggest trends and you can mute them. So I mute the football trend. That was originally where where I saw videos of myself. So that is possible, but it's so draining to 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 continually do that. Um and so wouldn't it be nicer to have a, a better default? And then to go back to Shahi's point about um the uh, the difference of abuse between sports. Uh football is a, is a, is another breed completely. Um, and I was wondering why that is the case and clearly it's it's been the culture um, and also I was at a rugby league game it's a rugby league world cup at the moment so at a rugby league game recently and the players are so respectful to the ref um, which is just bizarre because as players we can be quite aggressive to the referee and actually the the main thing that I think separates our behavior to the referee and I think this would be an analogy for then fan abuse the main thing that separates the way that 
football players treat the ref and rugby league players treat the ref is actually the consequence. So at the moment, if several players crowd a referee and abuse the referee or heckle the referee for a decision, the rule this year is that the referee can give a yellow card to one of those players randomly. I think if it's over I think I think the rule is actually if it's over three players, then one player gets, you know, a yellow card. And that's actually better than previous years. So that's seen as quite progressive. Um, in rugby league, that would be completely unacceptable, I imagine. I didn't see it on that night, but I assumed you, you would just be sin-binned. If that happened, immediately you would be sin-binned. So clearly, the, the, the way that we anticipate consequences for our actions will shape whether, whether we do that or not. So if as, if as players we know, if you abuse the referee, you're going to get yellow carded, you would not be see you would not see that or if if you were to get red carded you would not be doing that because it would be too detrimental for your team so clearly um fans abusing players uh, offline first and then i think that then bleeds into online that the consequences just aren't big enough right you know shay, shay you mentioned you heard someone at a game throw racist abuse to a player and and there wasn't the framework there and then to deal with that, then there mustn't have been a number on the back of the chair, um, a code that you could have scanned. And whoever was doing that abuse would know that themselves. Um, and so firstly, the consequences have to be known and they have to be bigger. And then then we can go on to obviously on, online as well which is really hard because at the moment on social media, you can create an account quite easily. Like I can't recreate who I am. If I get a yellow card, I can't then say, oh, well, actually I'm, I'm not going to be for Manion now for the second half. I'm going to be someone else. So wipe that yellow card. But to some extent, we, we kind of can do that online, which is why we see like people repeatedly potentially abuse people because they, they can hide behind a veil of anonymity so it's more tricky but certainly offline um there's there's loads more that can be done in terms of like anticipated consequences i completely 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 agree and yeah rugby is another example of like still very contact you know fully contact um sport um but doesn't have the same um consequences offline don't get me wrong it is still bad but it's the volume at which and I think you're right like where does this start and I draw another analogy from that actually with politics so you know there's a lot of violence in politics online and offline um lots of studies have come out actually about the number of, of people um who faced abuse and violence in politics across Europe and are not even wanting to stand anymore so there's a real crisis with how violence and abuse online and offline is impacting democracy and what's interesting is that studies show that people believe that they can be somewhat abusive to MPs because of what they see happen in question time. But they see it happen in BB, um, uh, par uh, Prime Minister's question time as well. So MPs' behaviours in Parliament that get seen, whether that's viral clips on social media, um, Tuesday evening news, um, where, wherever it is, people are seeing that. And, and as you said, it's setting a new standard to behaviours then just means it just escalates and escalates and escalates. And then when it comes to social media, you can, you don't just do it to one person, you can do it to 10,000 people at the same time. So I do think when, particularly at Glitch and what I talk about in the book, how to stay safe online, to stay safe online requires us having conversations about offline behaviour too. This is such a good point because um, 
I was thinking exactly that, how you have sports where the respect for each other is absolute. Uh, and in football, football, it's not. Even between players, between the players and the ref. Um, and it is a behavior that mimics the behavior. And then it's it's just like such an interesting point. Just to jump on that, I think like there's both aspect of like how this bleeds in like online, offline uh, type spaces, but also given the popularity of, of football um, in the UK, like how this bleeds into society kind of at large. I know there was a, another study, not the one that we've been participating in, but commissioned by Ofcom, which basically said that one in three people that are online see abuse against footballers. So these aren't even football fans. These are like just regular people. Like I myself am, I'm not a huge fan of football, but what does it mean for like other ways I speak to people or address people or think about things if I am encountered with all this um, abuse that, you know, isn't even in a place where I'm seeking out to read anything about even this single topic. And then having all this abuse in sports and in football that culturally seems to be, you know, really, really struggling with um, where these lines actually should be drawn and how people are respectful to one another. Um, there's both, yeah, just that bleeding of um, online, offline, but also football to not only other sports, but just into society at large, um, thinking about what, um, are acceptable ways of speaking to one another. Um, the, gosh, I have so many questions. She, she, you mentioned um, glitch in your book. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the idea behind glitch. Yeah, so glitch was um, birthed out of my experience of online abuse that I go into a lot more detail in the book. And there just didn't feel like there was any campaigns or movements that were talking about how to keep women safe online. Um, and so I started Glitch by going into schools, boys schools actually, um, talking about online safety, talking about what does allyship look like, talking about what the consequences of online abuse could be, how things in the name of banter actually can get you into a lot of trouble. You know, is it fu actually funny to share a, a naked photo of a person under the age of 18, which is technically child pornography? Like getting getting young people to really understand the consequences and responsibility of being online and spotting the signs with their peers when they can see like they're starting to withdraw. And then that helped kind of start the, the building block of kind of campaigning with governments around legislation, around making it easy to access justice, because, I mean, that's a whole nother hours episode around what happens now when you do have enough evidence of abuse. And it isn't negative grey comments that police kind of like um, ignore. You've got real hard head hitting evidence of, of, of abuse and violence and access to justice is completely, completely just unattainable and that moved into also raising awareness so a lot of people just thought well this is just what it means to be online it's what it means to be a woman in politics it's what it means to be a woman in 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 any kind of uh, public arena and, and it felt like the work that we had done to challenge victim blaming language offline like it's not your fault that you've been raped it's not your fault that you were stalked it's not your fault that your drink was spiked it was like all that work the last 20 years had been undone when it comes to social media. We were blaming women for having an opinion or a voice. Oh, well, you talked about something controversial. Like, what is controversial when it's 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 your human rights, right? So that kind of started them building a kind of campaign, a movement with volunteers for, for, for three years. And then Glitch became a charity in 2020, one month before the pandemic. Um, and we're now a growing team that are tr is trying to make the online space safe for everyone. But we have a lens of black women because we know that black women are 
disproportionately impacted by online abuse. They are 84% more likely to be abused online than white women. So we believe if you have an intersectional lens and you make sure that the online space is safe for the most minoritized, then you can guarantee that everyone is safe. But if we keep having research and, and conversations about the very privileged, privileged few who probably don't even look at their social media accounts, we're not actually making the online space safe for everybody. And then the book came from, from that. I couldn't have as many conversations with people as I wanted to. I also couldn't articulate the nuance of staying safe online wasn't a slogan to say that you have to bear the responsibility of staying safe online but there was governments and tech companies and employers and agencies and media and PR firms too they all have a responsibility in how we can be safe online and and then trying to give people in um so you know your network so your other football um players or your um, club rep, what can they do to be advocating for your safety online? And so the book tries to be kind of a beginner's guide into understanding online safety. Thank you so much for such a um, a brief overview. It's it's an amazing project. Um, and thank you so much for advocating for people that cannot ad advocate for themselves as well. Um, thank you. Um, so I uh, we were talking about football and and um and politics and uh minorities and it made me think about a very specific case that happened during the pandemic and how we saw mps um uh, uh, send some not so nice comments towards um a black player because he was helping kids and they were they opened up uh, so it was marcus rashford and he got attacked for trying to help um, kids and, and help meals in schools. And he got attacked by people in power, right? So then this, I think it opened up a lot of um, mimicking uh, behaviors as well from people because they were like, oh, my MP gets to say that, so I get to say this as well. Um, so I, it's just, um, I just wanted to bring this because it's a cross-section cross example of how um, the people in power have um, have to be aware of their own behaviors because they can, um, and first of all, they shouldn't, you know, make the comments that they did to anyone, but also they shouldn't open up the stage to other people and empower people that tend to be racists and, uh, and abusive and, and sexists to actually come out and say these things um, to, to other people and have their voice. Sorry, I just went on a tangent here. I just thought it was <laughs> um, a thing. Um, so um, my question now is, what's next, Pika? What's next on the research? So um, it's actually a very good timing that you, that you ask about that. Um, and, and a particular in, in context of that we have been speaking a little bit about um, kind of abuse in politics, because that is something that we are looking into to potentially... Um, use as our next uh, example of, of kind of how um, hate and abuse um, spreads online. So I'm not going to say too much about that specific project, but um, we might be able to put out um, some more empirical evidence on kind of how abuse uh, manifests in, in the political sphere. Um, so that is kind of what's next for the Online Harms Observatory, which is kind of the larger um, uh, product that this research stems from. 
Um, but it, when, when it comes to um, the abuse faced by footballers, we are now also gathering data on uh, female football players and um, looking into to what degree um, the model that we have built for male footballers and the abuse that they face um, can transfer over to another um, demographic. So really trying to look into the nuances and the differences in particular that um, footballer football players might face, um, depending on kind of where they where they sit and, and how um, abuse can also be very gendered. Um, so that's something that we are excited to be working on right now. Um, and our uh, initial findings kind of showed that um, there are a lot of single accounts that are sending, you know, one piece of abusive content to players so that there aren't a lot of coordinated attacks, but rather um, perpetrators are, are few, but very many. Um, so we also want to be doing a little bit more research into uh, the dynamics of, um, you know, how how different people are engaging with this type of content um, to be able to uh, network that a bit better and, and understand, um, you know, perpetrators and uh, the dynamics of not just the, the scale and scope of abuse, but um, to what degree, you know, different people are sending this this type of abuse and, and how kind of the dynamics of abuse occur from a perpetrator um, type level. Um, my next question is for both uh, Aoife and Shahi. Do you think this um, type of empirical and actual quantitative research can help um, the next steps uh, either, um, you know, uh, fighting the fighting how how the abuse spreads or at least opening up the conversation because I guess it represents a solid piece of evidence and not just I have the sense of um, which one of you wants to go first Shay do you want to jump in <laughs> I don't know if you're gonna like my answer though <laughs> it's okay you can say anything I might, I might, I, I'll, I, I think I'll go one way and you might go the other way. So it'll, it'll sort of seesaw. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> it will balance out. I think the answer is no. Yeah. Um, so I've been in this space coming up to six years and there are people in the global South who've been in this for to coming up to 10 years. We have a lot of research. We have all the evidence. People in power just choosing not to do anything about it. And what actually I'm concerned about is that more and more of the research and the evidence will be about um, specific groups of people who get like favoured in society. So the moment, so before research was on uh, politicians, women politicians, because everyone really cared about that. And then it was like campaigners and you go after Me Too. And then it was about um, um, nurses because of the pandemic. Like we're going to just end up getting caught up in talking about individuals. And it's the same thing with perpetrators. We're talking about Andrew Tate, then we're not talking about Trump, then we're talking about Katie Price, then we're talking about Kanye. Like, we need to move away from the individuals and the groups and really stay at looking at this systemically because actually we're just chasing our tails. We've got all the evidence. Yes, it's really helpful when research comes out by a very influential institution because that gets, you know, broadcast media to want to pay attention to that and therefore we can have a bit of a conversation because, yes, we are trying to fight for 10 minutes of fame on the 10 o'clock news, I totally get a, the, the tactic for it. But I think the investment that we're seeing in research is best served in looking at perpetrators, looking at a public health approach um, 
to attacking tackling online abuse researching incels which is a growing growing grooming movement of our of our boys and our now our now research is showing our older men are being groomed online to become hate-filled against women and this is only going to get worse with the economy and the cost of living getting get, um, um, going up so actually we spent six years convincing funders and powers that be to research this and we've done that we knew we, we know from glitches research that online abuse was worse during the pandemic we know from amnesty's international amnesty international's research that online abuse is worse for women every 30 seconds woman is, is abused on twitter what is going to be done about it now how are we having transparency around algorithms and how they're deployed and how they're amplifying how we how are we having um how are we setting a framework um, and I explore this, I talk about this in the book around the standards at which we want tech companies to be operating at. We heard a month ago that Pinterest and other social media companies, well, sorry, that's the, let me get the one that's recording what I'm saying. We found out a month ago that Pinterest and other social media platforms were held culpable for Molly, Molly Russell's death. We don't want to move now to another bit of like like five minute news and not get on that watershed moment to say this is the standard in which tech companies need to be operating in. We have a, the most important bill coming in our generation. And if it doesn't get called back into parliament in the next couple of weeks, and I mean it in the next couple of weeks, this bill is going to be timed out of parliament. We're going to have to start all over again. And this is a bill that is looking to legislate and regulate social media companies. And there is threats to take out the most important clause that talks about what we talks about, what we were discussing at the very beginning of this conversation, legal but harmful. And despite hundreds, if not thousands of people saying that they want more regulation around misogyny and, and racism and other um, abusive content on the platforms that is not illegal, but it's harmful. We have a real um, a real threat to this bill either, even happening, and if it does happen and even being fit for purpose. So empirical evidence isn't helping us anymore. Actually, we need community mobilizing. We need to not see our differences that this is happening to footballers, this is happening to celebrities, this is happening to working class people. We need to understand that we are all subject to a business model that is profiting from us get, receiving hate and us being so unsafe. That's where we need to be focusing because we've only got a window of opportunity right now. Thank you. Eva. I think that Shay's comments give so so much food for thought um like really impassioned um so, like so many things that definitely opened my eyes and that I found myself nodding along um when I speak about this topic I am speaking from a narrow group that Shay has said like you know it's not about individual groups it shouldn't be about a victim it should be looking more broadly at perpetrators um my reaction to the question is actually yes i i do think it's helpful and and so so through through the lens that i say that um is that those types of studies so in this case it was the um Alan Turing piece commissioned by ofcom about abuse to professional footballers they legitimize and give language to to the experiences that we have um, and then off the back of that, I think that that then can help footballers and people with a platform to to actually have the language to care and the language to challenge it. 
So, for example, I see that um, the the report and I and then I think like, wow, actually, the the way that potentially I've been treated online or my teammates have been treated. Now I have a language to go that that's actually really, you know, really harmful. That's incorrect. That's that's um, unacceptable. And so then I engage with social media differently and I'm more likely to to definitely more likely to call things out. And I find it easier to create boundaries than if I hadn't have seen that. And I think that that can be important because generally and Shay, you mentioned it as favoured groups. So potentially politicians, footballers, people with the big platform, um, potentially they have um, the power of a larger platform so that if if the way that I engage with social media um, is slightly different in terms of calling out abuse, then that, that could have a positive impact. Now, on the flip side, I imagine you would say back to that, well, look, that's fine, but that's that's like really on a tiny scale and actually where change is going to be made is in a bill in, in Parliament. Um, and so I don't disagree with what you say. I, I just, I guess I just say it from the way that I felt having read having sort of heard that report. No, let, I, I definitely believe that it's an important tactic and tool for awareness raising because we are so socialised to belittling our experience that it is important to help us see that, oh my God, I'm not on my own. Oh, you've been going through that too? Like there is comfort in that. And then where do, what I'm saying is where do we go from that? That moment where we're awakened to be like, oh, this is a systemic issue, so let's do something about it. Not keep going to more research that just keeps telling us how bad it is because then the fear is, what we've seen in climate change is then people become apathetic. People are like, oh my God, the climate change is too much. I can't do anything about it. So people should stop doing anything about it. That's where I'm worried that we're going to get to, that we get people are going to think that, well, Elon Musk has bought Twitter, there's nothing we can do. No, there is so much we can do. So how do we use, as you said, and a moment of engaging people and footballers who have platforms so they can then engage their followers, right? Which is a very important tactic. How do we how do we agree where the vision is? Where do we agree where we want to be in 2024? And how do we make sure all of those tactics are pointing to that? And it isn't just where I fear government wanting to pretend that they're doing something about this and not actually doing the things that they can do that's with totally within their wheelhouse to do. If this um, funding was um, commissioned by um, not the government, you know, it was commissioned by businesses, um, uh, advertisers on these platforms, great. But government are acting as if that's the only thing that they can do in the, that's in their wheelhouse. I don't think that's the case. It ends up being a bit of a facade. You know, it's a bit like... Um, um, what's an analogy? Um, when you uh go to the club and um, rather than sorting out the fact that they keep they they're, they're a venue that allows people to be perpetrators, they think just putting stickers up on the football on, on the toilets is enough. Like you need that and something else. You need that and tight security. You need that and enforcement. And I try and explain that in the book that I am not trying to go into a social media companies are the sole have sole responsibility in over other people i think we need a triangulation approach where my frustration comes is that government can do so much more and they pretend that all they can do is the research which isn't the case they can use the research to say 
This is why this is no longer censorship, but this is now a public health issue. We have people being groomed to incels. We have people self-harming. We have people, our democracy is at risk. Look at all the misinformation around COVID. Like this is enough evidence to say, no, this needs to be regulated like every other business in this country. Yes, I just find myself nodding along. You make such good points. Um, is there anything? And you, yeah. and you know where I think where the research could get extended to for victims and survivors? Healing. Because you know how painful it is to be on the receiving end of abuse. And then you go to your ne- your therapist and she doesn't know what's going on. She says, oh, just block it. The NHS are not being supported enough to equip victims. And so what we're seeing through research is that victims and survivors of online abuse are now becoming perpetrators because hurt people hurt people. The cycle of trauma, the cycle of violence. So I'd be really interested in um, how, what would it looked like to have offline and online activities that allowed women and survivors of online abuse to be properly supported through that horrific and scary um, situation because you've pushed someone to a trauma response. You've pushed someone to thinking they are in danger. That doesn't just disappear over a weekend. That doesn't just disappear when you've switched off your phone for 24 hours. That sits within you and that starts changing the way your brain works, the mind works, your emotions. all sorts of psychological research into this that again governments are not choosing to use and invest in this is a good place to to talk about this Shay, because i get that this is gonna this podcast is gonna be heard by lots of researchers and hopefully um someone is gonna take that because that's a really good point and a really good um research area i would say definitely think there is uh lots of interest it's it's uh, maybe not as as quantitative as a lot of the research that we do here is on, um, we've tended to focus more maybe than on on reporting and um, and some of those bits. But I really do think that there are there is lots and lots of interest. Um, so I'm I'm really happy that it's being raised in this this platform. And then maybe as a as a final comment, um, as someone who works with empirical research in this area, um, I do think that you, the public policy program is very uniquely placed to be able to have these conversations with the very, very relevant stakeholders and the policymakers that are actually, um, you know, trying to make this bill pass through Parliament as quick as possible, and that we are uniquely placed in being able to both, you know, do the research and speak to the policymakers about it, then at the end of the day, we can only be as, you know, um, persuasive as, as we can, you know, attempt, attempt to be. Um, we're not going to be the ones that change the policy at the end of the day, but I think it is great to be in a place where we can both do the research and hand the research over to the people in power and have uh, constructive conversations about that. Thank you. Um, Is there anything else anyone would like to add? Um, In that case, this has been a wonderful wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. We usually, uh, just one last thing is to ask you guys, um, we talked about social media, so this is for you to receive good feedback, but where can people follow you if they want to see what you're up to or maybe contact you and help you somehow um, or just get in touch? Um, uh, can we start with Aoife? Yeah, so my social medias are literally just my full name, Aoife Mannion, um, and then it's like underscore on Twitter. Um, I won't bore people by actually spelling out my name, but if people feel strongly enough to, to want to follow me, um, it is just my full name. Pika? So um, quite similarly, just my first name, Pika underscore Johansson um, on Twitter. 
and Shane. I'm on trend here with the others. It's my first and last name on, on Twitter and Instagram. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, guys. Nice and simple. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The show is hosted by me, B. Costa Gomez, Ed Calstreet, Joe Dungate, Christina Last, and Anika York. Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram. Thank you.